0: Good morning. Before we pray, let me just say that I'm missing you. The church is not just part of my life. In many ways, it is my life. You are my life. And I miss seeing your face and your smile and hearing your words and feeling your love and seeing your service. You are essential. And while these things have not all disappeared completely, They're certainly diminished, and therefore I feel diminished. During this time of fasting, I long for feasting, and I look forward to the time which I hope will come soon when we are all reunited in full communion with one another and with the Lord. Let's pray. Glorious Father, though we are not physically present with one another today, nevertheless, we have all assembled before your presence today. And we do so in the spirit of unity and communion. We come to worship and to sit under your word with the expectation of being fed and nourished. Help us to grow during this time of testing. As our routines are disrupted and as we are reminded of things that we have taken for granted, give us humble and thankful hearts, creating us a hunger and a thirst for the eternal things and a deeper desire for your kingdom. Grant to us tender hearts toward each other, open opportunities for us to love and serve our families and neighbors for Christ's sake. On this Palm Sunday, we remember our Redeemer's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. May he also triumph in our hearts, and may the King of grace and glory enter in as we lay ourselves and all that we have and are in full and joyful homage before him. We continue to pray for the sick, the struggling, and the grieving who are among us, that they might find healing, strength, and faith. Lift up our hearts and our hands and bring us through the valleys that we might have our sorrow turned to joy and our nights turned to day. Today we ask that your mercy will be extended to our nation and to all those who you have ordained to have power and authority over us, our President and Congress, our courts and governors, and our local officials, that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. May our leaders seek your face, and we pray that you would grant them wisdom in this time of pandemic. Help us to submit joyfully during this time of trial and testing, that we might rely on your goodness and trust in you to work all things together for good for those of us who are called according to your purpose in Christ Jesus. Help us not to be anxious, but rather to be thankful and to bring our concerns and fears to you and cast them upon you that we might have a peace that passes understanding. We pray today for all those who are serving our communities, especially those who are caring for the sick and for those who are maintaining good order. Give them strength and protection as they fulfill their callings. We pray for those whose jobs and livelihoods are threatened in particular those who are among us, that you will provide for them. We lift up our families who have new challenges of education and management. May we be especially loving toward those closest to us. And for the church, we pray for a time of spiritual maturity. Bind our hearts together, both our local churches as well as the broader church throughout the world. Heal our divisions and draw us all to our one Savior, open new opportunities for the gospel to spread. And now, O oh Lord, as we sit under your living word, keep us in your abiding love according to the working whereby you are able to subdue all things to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles today. We'll be reading from John, the fifth chapter, verses 39 through 47, and also from Luke, chapter 24, verses 25 27. Hear now God's word from John chapter 5 beginning in verse 39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know that that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, uh, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? And then from Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said, amen. I have preached six sermons over the last few months on the short book of Obadiah, which uh, those messages are available in audio form on our church website and as podcast. And I'd like to wrap up that series today and next Sunday, this Sunday being Palm Sunday, next Sunday Easter And our two texts today from the Gospels of John and Luke set the table for doing this. We'll get to some of Obadiah and and that text in just a few moments. But since Obadiah is one of the Old Testament prophets, and since Moses and the prophets spoke of Christ, therefore we should look for and in fact expect to find Christ in the book of Obadiah. But before we get to that, and by way of brief review, our modern world, which is actually not all that different from the ancient world, loves to scoff at the idea of God's judgment. But that's part of what the prophecy of Obadiah is all about. It's about how an arrogant nation, Edom, boastfully asks, Who will bring me down to the ground? And God takes up that challenge, and he says... Though you ascend as high as the eagle and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. So this story in Obadiah about Edom and Judah are really extended stories that began with Jacob and Esau, the twins. Uh, and, And so both of these stories turned out to be stories that point to another story, the master story, the arch story, of Jesus himself. The Bible is a storybook. It's a collection of stories, and each story starts out good, and then something bad happens, and then God, by way of his judgment, steps in to make things right. At the end of every story, things are better than they were when they started. Dr. J. Adams refers to this as being more than redemption. Not only are we brought back to where we started, we're brought back into a better place that that was even better than where we started. And we are all pretty familiar with this pattern of redemptive stories. Many fairy tales follow this pattern, and I want to illustrate that this morning with one that I know you're all familiar with. So I'm going to read from some of the original text of that story. Once upon a time, there lived lived in a certain village a little country girl the prettiest creature that ever was seen. Her mother was very fond of her, and her grandmother loved her still more. This good woman made for her her a little red riding hood, which became the girl so well that everybody called her little red riding hood. Then, as she was going through the wood to meet Gaffer Wolf, who had a very great mind to eat her up, he asked her whether she was going. The poor child, who did not know that it was dangerous to stay and hear a wolf talk, uh, stay and hear a wolf talk, said, quote, I am going to see my grandmother and carry her a custard and a little pot of butter from my mama. And you know how the story unfolds. And so we're going to kind of advance ahead here. Uh, and uh, the wolf will eat the grandmother and assume the grandmother's place in bed, and a dialogue between Red Riding Hood and the wolf begins. Oh, grandmother, what a big, terrible mouth you have, the better to eat you with. And scarcely had the wolf said this than with one bound, he was out of bed, and he swallowed up little Red Riding Hood. A woodsman came along, a savior we would say, who was passing by, and he stopped to check on the grandmother. He went into the room, and when he came to the bed, he saw that the wolf was lying in it, and he said, Do I find you here, you old sinner? I have long sought you. Then just as he was going to fire at him, it occurred to him that the wolf might have devoured the grandmother and that she might still be saved. And so he did not fire, but took a pair of scissors and began to cut open the stomach of the sleeping wolf. When he had made two snips, he saw the little red riding hood shining, and then he made two snips more, and the little girl sprang out crying, Ah, how frightened I have been, how dark it was inside of the wolf. By the way, we have here a picture of a resurrection. And after that, the aged grandmother came out alive also, but scarcely able to breathe. Another resurrection. Little Red Riding Hood, however, quickly fetched great stones with which they filled the wolf's belly. And when he awoke, he wanted to run away, but the stones were so heavy that he collapsed at once and fell as dead. Then all three were delighted. The huntsman drew off the wolf's skin and went home with it. The grandmother ate the cake and drank the wine. I don't know if that's supposed to be bread and wine. Which little Red Riding Hood had bought brought, and she arrived when she arrived. And she excuse me, and then she revived, but little Red Riding Hood went joyously home, and no one ever did anything to harm her again. So the beginning is good. The problem arrives, the big bad wolf, bad the intervention, the judgment by the woodsman, the savior, and the ending. They lived happily ever after. This story theme happens over and over in the Bible. We see it from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, with Joseph and his brothers, with the Hebrews in Egypt, or with David or Job or Jonah or Daniel or Peter. So why do we see this pattern over and over? Commentator and pastor David Field, to whom I owe much of what I've learned about the book of Obadiah, puts it this way. The answer, as to all Sunday school questions, is Jesus. His is the master story, and all the others are servant stories. If, for a story, you need need information, time, and goal, then it is clear that the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, information, who is before all things, the first and the last, time, And who is the heir of all things and the one for whom all things were created, goal, is himself the focus and Lord of story. He is the story. And since God is the author of the whole Bible, and since he is infinite in knowledge and wisdom, he can and he does more than one thing at a time, and he does more than one thing in a story as Peter put it, Second Peter 1, 20-21, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture, and of course that would include the book of Obadiah, is, is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And again, Peter in First Peter chapter 1 says this, a kind of a, a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. Of this salvation, the prophets, again would include Obadiah, have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now they're speaking to New Testament believers, if you will. And so these prophets were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, that is the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels desire to look. So first, we go back to the Old Testament. We have the story of Jacob and Esau. That is going to unfold as they have descendants, and those descendants will then become Judah and Edom. And then late, and, and later, we have the master story of Jesus, who, by the way, is a descendant of Judah, and Herod, who is a descendant of the Edomites. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate the coming of the King of Kings. Herod the Great, who tried to take down Jesus when he was born, was himself a descendant of the Edomites. His son, Herod Antipas, was an Edomite and half Jew. And we see the same ancient conflict being played out between Jacob and Esau, Judah and Edom, and then Herod and Jesus take the stage. Both the story of Judah and Edom in the book of Obadiah, which was historical, as well as the story of Jesus and Herod, which of course was historical, are being spoken of by God in the book of Obadiah. You've heard me quote this old saying, the new in the old is contained and the old by the new is explained. Richard Hayes in his book, Reading Backwards, explains it this way. The, gospel, the Gospels teach us how to read the Old Testament And at the same time, the Old Testament teaches us how to read the Gospels. Or to put it a little differently, we learn to read the Old Testament by reading backwards from the Gospels, and at the same time, we learn how to read the Gospels by reading forward from the Old Testament. So what is the story of Obadiah? The Edomites, remember, they're the descendants of Esau, who should have acted like brothers, instead acted like enemies toward God's people, uh, just as the Babylonians uh, brought about the fall of Jerusalem and the capture of Judah. As a result, God was now going to intervene and bring about justice and restore order to the whole world. At the same time, the Jews, who had apparently been defeated and and dispossessed, would be rescued by God. They would be brought to a place of restoration and and full enjoyment of their inheritance. They would rule over their former enemies. God's kingship would be established. It would be demonstrated and experienced. This is the happily ever after part of the story. And so we start with God's people, good And then God's people are defeated and mocked and beaten and humiliated, bad. And then God's people are vindicated, rescued, restored to rule over their enemies, better than where they started. So what we want to do is we're going to take a brief look at two sections here of Obadiah. Remember, it's just one chapter long. We're going to look first at verses 10 through 14. And again, I want to acknowledge and give thanks to the work of David Field. What happens to God's people in these verses, in verses 10 through 14, does not predict what would happen to Jesus, but it does, or it should, make us think about it. It makes us think about what would happen to Jesus. Just as Herod, again, who was a descendant of the Edomites, failed to recognize and to delight in the Lord Jesus, but rather joined with the outsiders, that is, the Romans, in condemning and humiliating him, and therefore, we go back to Obadiah. We see the Edomites failing to sympathize with and to support uh, the Jews, the those of Judah, but rather than joining, but rather they join with the outsiders, that is, the Babylonians, to condemn and humiliate them. So the the Edomites join in. They plot, they mock, and they plunder God's people. They line up with the enemies of God's people. So again, let's look at these verse by verse. Verse 10 of Obadiah says this, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Just as the Jews suffered violence from those who should have known better and done better, and just as Jacob's own brother had done violence to him, so too... The Lord Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. He too suffered violence from the very people who should have recognized him as the Son of God. In verse 11, we read, In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Again, God speaking to Edom. And so as God's people were plundered and their possessions were divided up by lot, they were casting lots for them, those who, who should have been helping God's people, or at the very least sympathizing with God's people, they looked on with an attitude, the same attitude that their enemies had. And as the Romans desecrated the holy place of the body of Jesus, and they cast lots for his garments... So too the Jewish leaders, those who should have welcomed Jesus as the Messiah and submitted to him, stood by and they watched with pleasure as he was humiliated. Verse 12 of Obadiah, But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. This was the day of Jerusalem's calamity and distress, and yet it was also a day when the wails of God's people, unfortunately, were mingled with the shouts and the callous delights of the onlooking Edomites. They mocked, they gloated, they boasted over God's people. And as we anticipate Good Friday this week, we are reminded of how much of the gospel accounts of the trial and death of Jesus is taken up with the mocking and the boasting of his enemies. The soldiers stripped him, and they robed him in a mock robe of an emperor's clothes. They knelt before him, and they pretended to uh, adore him and honor him. They struck him, they spat on him, and they asked the blindfolded Jesus, Who hit you? And the crowds and the authorities and the priests and those who crucified Jesus, Uh, with with, uh, crucified Jesus, all took part in the humiliating mockery of that day. Obadiah 13, You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Just as the Edomites entered into the city of Jerusalem and looted its wealth, so too the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the city of true humanity, was also invaded and despoiled. If He is who He says He is, if He is the Lord of glory, if He is the Son of God, then anything short of total honor and submission to Him is to ignore and to contribute to His humiliation. As Psalm 2 warns, Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Obadiah 14 says, You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among, among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. So the Jews, uh, those from Judah, were being taken into exile and even as they did so, they were killed and they were handed over to the darkness of captivity. So too on the cross, the Lord Jesus was in exile, banished under the curse of God to the far country of alienation, darkness, and judgment. And so we see that the first half of the story of Obadiah takes us to Christ through the betrayal of, and the defeat of God's own who were mocked and stripped of their possessions and dignity. They were destroyed, exiled, humiliated. We observe Obadiah's outrage, in fact, his anguish at the ruin and the distress that came to the Jews. And then, looking at the violation of God's own Son, we should feel a similar outrage and anguish. And then in verses 17 through 21 in our story here, God's own, His people, are vindicated and restored. Verse 17, But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The defeated and crushed people of God find that through His kind and just and powerful intervention... They are rescued and redeemed. There is escape and salvation on Mount Zion, the place where God dwells, the place where God makes Himself known. There is a future when it seems that all hope is gone. Meditating on this, we find ourselves outside the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. God has intervened in kindness and justice and power to Deliver Jesus from the power of death and the grip of the grave. God has stepped in with His holy power to rescue His dear Son from destruction. The resurrection of Jesus is the salvation of His own people. And in the resurrection, He is set apart as the Son of God in power to be close to God. Close to God in proximity, that is, at His right hand but also in the sense that He is God. The deliverance which God gives to His people in view of their previous humiliation can only be seen as a vindication and a pronouncement from God, yes, that these are My people. And this is exactly what we see in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That resurrection, that deliverance from death is a vindication of God's Son, the resurrection is God's verdict over Jesus, which says, I am perfectly satisfied with you. And the wonderful news of the Gospel is that the judicial verdict, perfectly satisfied, which God declared over Jesus in the resurrection, is thereby also declared over every single person who by faith is joined or, and is in union with Jesus Christ. Verses 18 through 20. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivors shall remain in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Sheparad shall possess the cities of the south. And so God's rescued, restored, and vindicated and set apart people then enter into the full possession of their inheritance. They are granted authority to own and to rule all the land that God has promised them, enjoying it and living in it and living in the kingdom of God as Jesus or as Jesus becomes king. When we meditate on these verses in the light of the fact of the story of Obadiah, that story is serving the master story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we cannot help but think of the present enthronement of Jesus Christ. The Father has placed all things into His hands. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Jesus asked the Father, and He did receive the nations for His inheritance, and all the ends of the earth for His possession. He's to have first place in everything. He is the heir of all things. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the meek who shall inherit the earth. He is the obedient son who will live long in the land. He is the seed of Abraham who inherits the world. And this takes place at the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of Jesus. Obadiah then takes us to the Lord Jesus Christ by giving us this story which points to the master story. The story of Obadiah is that God's own is betrayed, humiliated, defeated, crushed, mocked, and exiled, and then God's own is delivered, restored, vindicated, set apart, given possession, triumph and rule, taking over the world under the kingship of God, surrounded by the mocking of those who should have known better, but restored to enter the inheritance that was promised by God. When we read that story, there is no doubt where the Holy Spirit intends for us to go. We cannot but think about the Lord Jesus Christ. The pattern, the structure, the shape of the story of Obadiah point to, these things are played out in and expanded upon by the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to finish this with a closing thought from David Field. It might be asked... Why would we do this? Why haven't we got Matthew 26 through 27 and Mark 14 through 15 and so on? What is the point of meditating on the death and resurrection of Jesus from Obadiah when we have whole sections of the New Testament explicitly about these things? The answer can be given briefly because we love Christ and we would go anywhere to see him. He is our hope, our hero, and our joy. Yes, we'll be there on Saturday afternoon to see the world's greatest football player in premiership action, but if you tell us that we can watch him on the training ground on a wet Wednesday, then we'll be there too. Yes, we'll be there on Saturday night at Covent Garden to hear the world's greatest soprano sing, but if you tell us that she's going to be doing her voice exercises first thing tomorrow morning, then we'll be up early to attend and listen. We meditate on Christ through the story of Obadiah because the Father speaks of his son of his son that way and we want to attend to everything the Father tells us about the son. Every angle tells us something new and if we have to look more closely and think more carefully and ponder more deeply this will be a good thing. And the Adumbration of the great story of Jesus the King, which we find in Obadiah, will make us fans of Obadiah for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the stories of the Bible, all of which point to your master story of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to learn those stories and apply them to our lives and circumstances finding ourselves in those stories. Go with us now as we live our stories as your people. Help us to always remember that we have already gained the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ and that through faith we have overcome the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.